Okay, hello and welcome to episode 46 of Dano Says So, brought to you by Trust Records as part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Today's guest is someone I met in 2013, which I think is probably a little bit of a surprise to both of us because we swam in a lot of the same water for decades previously. Uh, By then, he was already an accomplished engineer and producer and the operator of Buzzbomb Studios. Prior to that, he's a lifelong musician. I believe you're a founding member of Death by Stereo, yeah? Yeah. He's basically well-versed on all bells and whistles when it comes to recording music, and I am thrilled to pick his brain about that. He's the first studio personnel, personnel as an engineer, operator, owner that I've had on the show. Paul Miner, thank you for doing this. You're most welcome. Thank you very much for having me. All right, sir. I wanted to jump right into the technology of the thing. Cause when I was looking at your own website, you know, I was like, how do I research Paul? I know Paul, I know Paul pretty well at this point. Yeah. But, I do not keep a tidy website though. Yeah. Well, no, it's outdated, but it was funny because what it, what it did put something into stark perspective for me was it talked about you starting off on a four track in a living room and you've yes. evolved to somewhere very different. So I was just wondering if you could sort of walk me through your maturation and recording from, I mean, from absolute square one to what you operate with now. It really does come from a DIY punk ethic uh, that in my brain, when me and my friends played, started a punk band in high school and we were like, well, we need to have a demo tape. Mm-hmm. We're like, what do you do? Well, I got to get all the gear to make a demo tape. I didn't think, Oh, I'm going to pay to go to a studio. So uh, I, it was literally like our band was waiting on me buying a kick drum microphone for like a month before we could mm-hmm. record our demo tape instead of, hey, let's save up our money and go to the studio. So it really was like, that was my mindset from the beginning was just, I got to do everything myself. So got a four track cassette recorder, a Marantz four track cassette recorder for my parents for Christmas. Uh, I believe that was in 93, I think. And then yeah just uh recorded my band recorded actually Ephraim the singer from death by Sarah, record his old band clint recorded all the bands that i had met in that world uh they would come over to my mom's living room and record cassette demos and i actually from that recorded or released a few quite a few releases on my own label dental records which is uh <laughs> that's a great name <laughs> Yeah, I think I had 10 releases, but most of them were from stuff that I had recorded in my mom's living room. But basically in doing that, I got the bug and I just I loved everything about recording and what I got was totally fascinated by all all aspects of it. And that parlayed into, well, what we my band recorded a a cassette album. It was like 12 songs released on cassette. And then we said, Oh, we need to step it up. And we went to for the record, the studio in Orange to record our seven inch after that. And during that process, Eric Garten or otherwise known as E was like, Hey, if you guys know anyone that wants to intern, like, let me know. I'm like, I do. I want, and that was it that I got the, the bug and I would be there at any time that I could. I would, I didn't live too far. I grew up in Yorba Linda. So it was a quick drive over there and I would just be there helping him on any session I could. I helped out Jim Monroe, Craig Knapp from time, sometimes like, Ace, uh, Steve Asvedo, bunch of bunch of guys that were working there as more experienced engineers. I would assist them and help as much as I could. Yeah, it wasn't too long after of me being an intern there that it was like E said, "Hey, go record, go do a record with NOE Talk." And that was the first thing that I did by myself, and I uh, was like, "I kind of don't know what I'm doing." He's like, "You'll be fine. You'll figure it out." And at the, <laughs> fortunately. I, it was like I 
didn't know enough to fuck things up. So I was doing things very by the book and I was being very careful and conservative. Things got a little weirder in the, like maybe the year after that, because I started getting a little more confidence and started being experimental and maybe made some, some mistakes, but it was, you know, I still, to this day, it's a constant learning process, but that was the early for the record days. And I, I recorded a ton of stuff for that. Probably, I want to say it was about four years, four or five years where I was only working there and would bring like, did the, the first thrice album there, uh, along with the death. Place. I did all the death by stereo stuff, uh, there, the early death by stereo stuff to the first thrice record, the tray use some stuff that I still like still get recognized for was in that early time where I was working there. Yeah. Then maybe about 2001, I think it was that death by stereo had gotten signed to epitaph and we got the opportunity to record at sound city and we, getting some other opportunities and it kind of led to me being maybe a little bit more of a freelancer. I started working in other studios. Yeah. That period lasted for probably like five, six years, which also included me. I would go track drums at a studio on a record. And then at the time I was living with our friend Dave Mandel uh, and I had built a control room and ISO booth in the back of his house. So I was doing some stuff. I would kind of do it in a mishmash of places, including my own house. And then in 2000, was it 2007, I took over what is now Buzzbomb um, from there was a previous owner and he didn't want to have a studio anymore. And I, I took it over and it's now been uh, 15 years as of May 1st that I've been there. It's interesting. The, the bands that you've recorded, the easy thing is to do the A to Z because Agnostic Front and the Adolescents come to mind for me right off the bat. And then you just pick zombie apocalypse or something like that. Right. <laughs> right? But what's interesting is it, it represents different eras in this music. Did sort of the big transition from analog to digital take place while you've been a recorder or are you sort of after that window? Oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I, sorry. I realized your previous question. I didn't really touch that much. Well, no, you, you, you did the question I was kind of afraid to ask, which was, oh. will you just tell your story real quick? <laughs> Um, so yeah, dur- through that timeline of, of me giving you the history of like different studios I worked at, it all started with, yeah, the cassette four track in my mom's living room. The next step was learning on a big analog console with a two inch Studer 24 track tape machine. And the only thing I did for four or five years was everything all live to not live to tape. You know, I was doing overdubs, punch-ins, that kind of thing, but it was much more of a live setting of everyone setting up and playing their instruments and maybe we'll go back and do the vocals later, but maybe punch in a guitar here and there, but everything was isolated, but yeah, it was all analog. You had to live with mistakes. You had to live with the limits of the technology and in, including, you know, punch, the, the tape machine at for the record had a, basically a flaw that you couldn't punch out on things like guitars that were constant or drums. So it was like, oh, I messed up that part in the first verse. Okay, we're going to punch in at the first verse and go to the end of the song. Because that's wow. like, that was the limitation of that particular tape machine mm-hmm. that built it. So that, you know, like forces you into creative decisions sometimes of people saying, I don't care that much about that mistake, or, you know, like we don't have time or whatever. As opposed to now, I go, no, I'm going to fix that three millisecond thing. I'm going to copy it from, you know, later in the song, paste it over, bang, 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 done. It was just obviously a different, very different process. And then in 2000, I want to say the year 2000 is when Eric or E got 
his first Pro Tools setup at For the Record. And so then it was, for a period of time, I was recording on the analog tape and then transferring it into Pro Tools and doing edits and maybe vocals going into Pro Tools. But the converter technology then was a little bit more archaic and um, didn't sound nearly as good as what's available today. So it really was a bit more of a sacrifice back then. The analog tape machine did sound significantly better for the uh, on most things, but obviously the editing and flexibility that the computer allowed would dictate decisions. Now it's more, to me, I'm completely over analog. I don't really care anymore because the converters sound so good now that it's not a sacrifice. It's just the best of both worlds, the best of all worlds. So yeah, I, I remember there was a real snobbery for a while um, when people would find out who would work in, who would work in digital versus who, who continued to work in analog. And I was guilty of that too. I was, I looked down my nose at people that would record on digital stuff because it did sound worse. And, you know, there was a period of time where it was noticeable. Like I could listen to something and go, Oh yeah, that sounds digital because the converter technology then. And that's really what it comes down to. Not so much because I don't know if you ever recorded on ADATs, those, the big like tapes that was one form of digital, you know, pro tools is another form, but they were both being, analog being converted into digital so that process has matured over the years but yeah i was absolutely a snob about that and it took me a long time to get over my own prejudices of you know this isn't no longer is it i'm saying okay i guess i don't like i'll forego the analog goodness for the flexibility it got to a point i would say uh I'm trying to think maybe six six seven years ago where i got a new uh, the newest Pro Tools converter that was just like, oh my God, these sound so good. I, I don't miss the tape machine at all. I, I did romanticize that a little bit over the years, but it, you know, fades away. And, and I think that we are now fully into the age where anyone that comes into my studio to make a record with me either is in their 40s or 50s and remembered recording analog tape mm-hmm. and also remembered how hard it was and what the limitations were. And then there's a bunch of, and most people are, uh, I've never recorded on analog tape, so I don't have an attachment to it. You know, like there, that middle area of the like early 2000s has passed where people did have access to both experiences. Um, and, you know, and there was pluses and minuses to each way. Well, inside baseball, for people who don't know this relationship, you and I have recorded six different releases together now in in a somewhat lengthy stretch of years. But I remember a very specific musician's guilt the first time I worked with you because I had been out of the game a little bit and hadn't recorded anything in probably, you know, seven or eight years. And we would happen things where I would hit one line in a chorus better this time than I did in the other time. And you would just move it over. (laughs) <laughs> and put it in both places. And I was like, I'm going to get caught. We can't do that. That's terrible. But then I would listen to the recording. It was undeniable that what you were doing was an improvement. Did you encounter that a lot? I think that, that like, yes. And like, I still do encounter people that are like, no, no, no. I, I don't want to, I don't want you to copy the first course and put them over all the courses kind of thing that, that want it to be more organic. But at least I would say for the most part now, that's a creative decision in mm-hmm. and, of like I feel guilty that I'm gonna be seen as a cheater because I, I st- and I say this anytime people talk about cheating of like copying mm-hmm. moving stuff around it's like if the Beatles had access to what we have access to now technologically they would absolutely be doing all that because even 
copying and pasting stuff is part of a creative process. Like, do you want it to sound more perfect or do you want it to sound less perfect and more organic or however you want to categorize that. So, and punching in on a tape machine 40 years ago is still cheating because you didn't play the song all the way through one, you know, all together. Mm-hmm. Like, so editing a tape, like between two takes is cheating because that's not one take of everyone playing the perfect take together. So it's, it's a sliding scale of how much cheating do you, are you willing to accept? And then most people these days that I work with are like, man, just, just make it sound awesome. I don't care how you get there. And that's, that's the opinion that I, I share of like, I don't, no one listens. I would say aside from a very, very small amount of people that would care about the process. No one listens to a song goes, how did you do it? Like, did you really edit that, you know, performance from the second chorus? Like, no one cares. Well, I mean, it, it strikes me that if you're doing your job right and doing your job well, things like this are undetectable to anyone but the people, uh, anyone but the people who track. Sometimes not even that, because like I will do things that and I won't remember. And I'm like, I can't remember if I copy or paste it. I have to zoom in on the waveform to see if it's exactly alike. And at that point, it really doesn't matter, because if I'm having to go to that length to discover it, then you know, I'm fooling myself. So well, do you remember the time that we were tracked about a we tracked a song that was about 45 seconds long in one of my bands? And it, the, the vocals would be duetted. It was me and it was with Chris Loman. And we had done another version of, of that exact same song months earlier. And Chris wasn't there the night I was tracking vocals. So you just went to go see how well they matched up. And they were something crazy, like within a, you know, a 20th of a second of each other. And you yeah. were able to just port Loman into the room. Yeah. 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 I, I do remember that. That was, uh, mm. that was kind of like, a holy shit. Like, I can't believe this is going to work. Right. Yeah, I, I, I'm curious about something. Go ahead. What do you got? Oh, I was just going to share a little anecdote in relation uh-huh. to that story that I just uh-huh. encountered. I'm working on a new record with Fear right now, uh-huh. and we got a song that Lee recorded in, I want to say it was 1973, pre-Fear, and okay. we are recording music behind his vocal that he did, whatever, you know, 50 years ago. That's insane. Uh, and gonna, it's going to re- be released. Uh, it's kind of like that Nat King Cole thing where he did with Natalie, with his daughter, and then they took old vocals that were already done. But that's what we're doing, and we're changing the tempo of, to make it more like on a click track. It's, it's really insane that what you can do, but it's, it's, a, you know, it's an exciting, exciting thing. Already. As you're talking, and as I'm getting lit up hearing that, I was not going to go artist specific much in this interview and i have instantaneously come to the conclusion that in a few cases that's really stupid because i've (laughs) got to ask you what's it like working with fear oh my god it's it's insane it's so and i've had i've had uh, a handful of opportunities to work with people that i really look up to and that i that i look at as like either maybe in the case I'm, i'm gonna have to freaking drop some names they're yours to drop not mine that's kind of the case you know and this isn't, it wasn't me. I didn't set this up. This is, has nothing to do with me, but because of Lee, Duff McKagan from Guns N' Roses came down like a month ago and recorded bass. And to me, I was like, when I was a kid, like I love Guns N' Roses. And I, I was like, holy shit, this is the, this is the bass player. One of the biggest bands ever in rock is sitting two feet away from me asking how, asking me how to play the song. Like, and those moments are pretty surreal. Uh, it's, and it's happened a handful of times, but Lee, to me is almost in another category of, of all of those people, because like I've gotten to work with some awesome, you know, important bands and, and musicians, but 
Lee is, I'll just put it this way. Duff McKagan was saying, he wasn't saying, oh yeah, this is awesome. You guys are welcome for me being here. He was saying, holy shit, I can't believe that I get to record on a fear song. I can't believe I'm here with Lee Ving. Like the, the biggest rock star in the world at one point is looking up to Lee Ving and idolizing. Like that's the kind of, whether like someone who's younger than me or you would understand the importance of fear and, and Lee, like he influenced all the bands that they liked, you know, and, right. and it's, it's pretty awesome. So like just the importance of his musical career is one thing, but then, and this happens with most of the people that I am fortunate enough to work with that they turn into like a coworker and a friend. And mm-hmm. it like that, that initial kind of me being in awe of this person, like, Oh my God, I can't believe leaving is fucking singing in my studio. And then now I've gotten to work with him a few times. And he's like, Hey boy, how you doing? Oh good, man. How's your weekend? Like, we're for friends it's it's crazy to me to like you couldn't have told me you know 30 years ago that you're gonna be friends with lee ving in 2022 like there's no way you would i would have believed you but um yeah it's it's pretty surreal but he's he's an incredible musician he's still at his age rips he's so good and he he's a great singer he still has that like front man panache he had he can play harmonica like crazy it's yeah it's so it's so cool this may this brings to mind a contrast i want to ask you about before it exits my rather empty skull uh you also deal with the very young like i'm thinking in this case you know a couple years apart you're dealing with you're dealing with fear and you're dealing with people like the 666 yeah how different is that it's a trip because it's I don't, do you know Pete Riley? I know Pete Riley. I've never I've never met his daughter or their band, but they're they're young, young ass people. When Pete first hit me up about recording them, like they were, I think they were 16. Okay. And I definitely felt like, oh my God, I'm the I'm the old man in the room. This is weird. But again, like, and this is something that I love about music. It's like it's it's the great equalizer. You you get on the same level and when you're in a musical collaboration or working relationship you know like like it you know like yeah maybe maybe they're saying some jokes that i don't understand or i'm saying jokes they don't understand but other than that when it comes to hey you know like play that (laughs) play g chord there in seven a or whatever like oh you're rushing that one little part and hey let's punch in the chorus like it then you you have this thing in common that you're working on together and it kind of erases some of those or most of those differences that you might have with someone. And, and that's, and really like, that's what I love about what I do and the world of people that I work with is that everyone ends up being friends. Like I end up being friends with most everyone that I'm working with. And, and that goes for 666 and, uh, and leaving <laughs> the, so, the opposites of the age spectrum. Mm-hmm. It occurs to me, you've got to have favorites. You can't help but have favorites, favorite bands to work with, favorite records that you've done. Is there a central ingredient that makes certain things stand out? I mean, is there, is there a, a common ingredient to your favorite stuff? Um, I think, I mean, for, I guess it's just my, my favorite things that I've worked on are things that I am a fan of. Like there's so much stuff that I love that I've done uh, that I, it's hard to just pick things out of the air. But one that comes to mind is the, first adolescence record that I did uh, in, I think it was 2013, um, the La Vendetta record, that that was the real beginning of me and Steve Soto finding this kind of musical 
brain that we shared. And I contributed to that, but it was also me witnessing, getting to witness Steve Soto and Tony Adolescent do their thing and, and make a record of, again, like they were a band that I was in awe of at first and then became friends with and realized that Steve and I realized like, holy shit, we kind of really like a lot of the same things or think musically in the same way of vocal harmonies or chord progressions or whatever. And that I would be like, Hey, I got this idea for this vocal harmony. Like, okay, I got one too. And then it was, Oh, that's the exact same thing. We, we kind of realized that we were, you know, on the same page in a lot of ways. So that was a confluence of me being a fan of their band and then being able to contribute, but then also just loving this new thing that we were creating together. So to answer your question, like, more specifically, I think that that is what it is, is that the common thread would be a band or a music that I love that is a new thing that, you know, I get to be part of. That, that, that really is, you know, like there's a pride aspect of it that I get to be like, listen to it and be like, yeah, I helped make this a reality. I helped make this awesome. Even, you know, like no matter what element of influence I had on, on the record. So yeah, I guess, I guess I would say that just like, uh, a passion, the care of the band itself and the songs and maybe a, a sprinkle of how much I helped it. Well, I, I recorded with you in different bands and you can tell when you're engaged and when you're not, you always do fine, fine work, but it's fun to work with somebody who gets excited about music, you know, and I, th- I should think when you're in some of these real passion projects, you've got to, you've got to be on cloud nine. It is. I mean, really, I would say almost never, I suppose there's been a time or two here and there, but almost never am I working with something that I don't like that. I yeah. don't, that I'm Oh, this sucks. Like, well, I don't want to be here today. Like it never happens because it's always, it's always my friend's bands and it's always saying, Oh, we had a good time recording with Paul. You should have him, you should have him do your record too. And then it's like, Oh yeah, I'm friends with Dan or I'm friends with whoever. And it's always coming from the same world of that grew out of the music that I played and that I enjoyed. So it's, you know, it's most always, I'm thrilled to be able to get to work on something. And a lot of times it's a cool challenge of maybe it's style wise or or genre wise. It's not something that's right up my alley, but I can use that as a challenge of, you know, researching like, Oh, what did this band that they like, what kind of guitar did they use or what kind of reverb do they like on their vocals or whatever and, and get out of my comfort zone and, and then try to, you know, like use that as a way to find new things that I enjoy myself. So one thing that you said in there made me think about, one of the questions that's already in my notes and that's that there's this heavy level of familiarity between you and a lot of the artists that you work with. And there's sort of this thick referral network coming from punk rock, which has always been kind of low budget and kind of DIY and kind of piece it together and do it when you can do it. Do you find that the expectations of punk rockers are sometimes a little bit difficult because you have to do business with friends and you know, the, the, the expectation for a, for hookup pricing or tolerance in tracking the hours, uh, the level of preparation, maybe before people come in, it could all, I see running a little bit fast and loose in this space. Has that been tricky? No, because I, I am very cognizant of the fact that I am always working with friends and that this world, this like punk rock, hardcore metal, you know, whatever world is very small and everyone knows everyone. And I don't want anyone to say, how much did Paul charge you? Wait, what the hell, man? He charges way more. Like, so for that reason, I have always, and will always charge fear the same prices I'm charging a band that's coming in, you know, 
with their breaking their piggy bank open to record them. Like respectful of the fact that people are spending hard earned money to come make a record with me. So I, I value their time. And, and I think it's just a mutual respect thing. As long as I'm showing them that I'm not fucking off and, you know, like having a half hour conversation on the phone in the front room while they're on the clock, then no one gets really mad about, or because they know like, Hey, when we're here, we're focused, we're working, you know, I'm, yeah, I know I'm aware that I'm paying for the time, but it's, uh, we're all working to make exactly what we want and everyone hopefully leaves happy and, and everyone feels like they got a, got a good deal of, you know, they got what they wanted and have a record that they're proud of and, and it didn't uh, kill them financially also. But um, yeah, it's more specifically, I am aware of the, uh, the financial aspect of it. Um, But I think, I think I have a, have developed over the years a, a way to balance that the friendship of like i'm always charging my friends to do what i do and um you know so like i'm always on time i always make sure that i'm you know dealing with personal things aside or you know if we're taking an hour long break for to go out to lunch like i'm not gonna be not gonna be on the clock What ratio do you deal with bands that actually write in studio, which is a process I've never really been a part Uh, of. I think you have to be pretty well healed and bands that drill like SWAT teams on songs for six months before they show up. I I think most people are pretty prepared these days. And Mm -hmm. and I I think that fewer and fewer people write uh, in the studio as time goes by because of the, uh, because of the, technology the ability to do demos at home and mm-hmm. and fully formed things all by themselves before they even step foot in the studio so there, there's less there's less guesswork a lot of times people will you know like are asking me for my opinion of how they want what, what do you think i should do on this course or what do you think i should how this riff should go or whatever but most of the time it's people coming saying like we have this song this is what we think and i'm saying okay i like that can we try this can we try this one thing or i'm tweaking things not changing things from the ground up most of the time and you I- introduce you introduce your creativity into the process but in my experience it's almost always to the betterment of the record i appreciate that <laughs> um i that's my goal is to right. make things better it's cuz there's really like i don't ever have an ego about like i i need to change something to put my stamp on it like i don't care i just want i want a make to make a good record i want the band to be happy i want people to listen to it to be happy like that's my goal um so yeah but i I don't think most people are not writing in the studio at the very most it's like uh oh i don't have this chorus finished give me 15 minutes and see Mm -hmm. them come up with a different extra line or two or like oh i don't really like this one verse like let me see if i can rework it but it's never uh like let's come in and f- start a song today from nothing okay that that's actually kind of what i was wondering about because I, i've heard stories of bands doing that and that seems to me like it would be excruciating for the person in your position so one of the things that uh you said just now that made me think you talked about people's ability to create fully formed demos at home and to do more and more of this work before they come in you think that technology will ever make facilities like yours unnecessary um, no, because there's always going to be a, a need for expertise. <laughs> like I've been doing this now for 25 years. Okay. I, I feel very confident in my abilities and everything that I've learned along the way. In addition to 
the collection of gear that I've got amassed over, over that time. And, you know, most people that are not doing it for their livelihood, or even if they are, even if you're a band that is a full-time band that's touring and working and all this stuff, they're still not going to invest the amount of money and time it takes to like to have the gear that I have or have the experience that I have. So at some point, like people will go, Oh, I can record, I can program drums at home, record guitars, vocals, have this pretty cool sounding song. And that goes a certain, goes a certain distance, but everyone that I'm working with has probably hit that point where they're saying, you know, I want this to be better than my gear allows or better than my ability can take me. So I want the, go hit up Paul and, and make something sound better than I can do. So I don't think that it'll ever get to that point because it's not just about equipment. It's obviously about experience and not even just recording experience, but like having someone else in the room that can be, that can help creatively. Um, Cause you know, like I'm sure you, for yourself, it's like you've written songs, you write lyrics or courses, whatever lyrics, songs, and are totally happy with everything and then go get in the room with the band and they go like, okay, I love this, but can you change this one thing? You're like, no, man, that's, that's how I want it. But maybe you're like, well, maybe I'll change that one verse. And then you get done and then you're like, fuck man, that was pretty cool. Like there's always something to not make like a, the collaborative effort. And I think that that's part of why people will always want to come to a studio i think every record that i've done at buzz bomb has been better because of the additional personality and additional perspective outside of the band i mean for one thing the band dynamic people start to feed on each other psychologically in a negative sense Absolutely. and you can almost be an arbitrator. i mean bands can be fully in love with each other and still having that outside arbitrator creatively is a good thing uh the next thing i was going to ask you i stopped by the studio once probably mid-pandemic and you were doing business, but I've got to believe it was a very different animal a lot of the last two years. Or were you just, you know, able to institute a certain amount of carefulness and and, and still function? Um, it was a different animal for sure. There was a big period of time where I just was shut down, like not okay. doing anything. I would like throughout the entire time, I was still doing mixing and mastering where, where I could be remote and just do things by myself. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't working with any bands at all. At the beginning of the pandemic, there was, uh, you know, a fair amount of kind of residual, oh, hey, we recorded these songs. Can you mix them or can you master them? And that was cool for a little while, but then that dried up when no one could do anything. Yeah, then things started getting a little bit more opened up and I, I was having people in with masks and being super careful and trying to minimize the amount of people there. But even then, it was, you know, it was a little scary just due to the unknown factor of, you know, what the risks were of having people in a small room together. Uh, and then, you know, like, what was it? The winter, uh, it got bad again. And I s kind of scaled back the amount of work that I was doing with people. But it's now, I would say probably just now feeling like it's getting back to normal where everyone's either fully vaccinated or has gotten it or something. And people, I, I would say just, most of the people that I'm working with mm -hmm. and myself included, my level of fear has settled a bit and I'm, a, I'm more comfortable with working with most people in, in the studio. So uh, it was hard, but I managed to get through 
through the last couple of years by because of being able to do things remotely. And that is actually speaking, going back to the technological aspect, it is a huge thing that we, the world I live in now, we live in now, is that I can mix songs. Like right now I got, I'm about to mix something from a band from the Czech Republic. And they're uploading me gigabytes of files that I can download in a few minutes, open up, do my mix a whole you know song from the ground up and then send them files back all just remotely that just that in and of itself is mind-blowing even i don't know eight ten years ago just because of, of connection speeds you know like i i do a bunch of stuff with some people in argentina and it's like they ever now there is such good internet connections all over the world that it enables me to work on projects that I wasn't able to before that people then think of, Oh, we should hit Paul up to do this because how am I, am I going to send a hard drive through, you know, the mail, like international mail? Like, no, mm-hmm. that just wasn't even a possibility. So that, that in and of itself has helped me, get through the last couple of years because I was able to mix and master stuff for people that, you know, were not in the Southern California area. Okay. I'm going to do one thing kind of cheesy here and dance with the one that brung me while you take a bite of that pizza. And <laughs> that is, that is to point out that yes, this pro this podcast is brought to you by trust records and that all records on trust can be purchased at their website as can tickets to the current circle jerks tour. But the reason I'm talking about it mid show is because there is a promo code based around my name. And I find that really cool. So if you go and you trust Dan, O, you get 20% off anything. That was my vulgar, vulgar commercial moment while Paul chews. Now I'm going to get into the last question here. You are a father and a husband. You are a family man. And you look to me like you're sitting in a residential setting as we do this. Indeed. Does this technological freedom and setting your own schedule and everything else, does that put you in a position where you're going to be able to work at this, something you love until the wheels come off? Like there's no real practical concern about the future, is there? Absolutely. The only concern is being busy enough to afford overhead yeah. <laughs> of a commercial space. Like the studio comes with costs and I need to be able to pay the bills for my, you know, the, the wife and kids and family and house and all that. And the bills at the studio, but that's now been, you know, a known quantity for 15 years and I, I'm comfortable with it. And as long as, as long as uh, things keep going, there's yeah, really no foreseeable end. I am actually in my home studio right now. Uh, okay. I have a little control room set up where I can do some editing and, and whatnot. Um, it's not, fancy because I, I i would love to get it to be at one point be able to do some professional work here but for now it's kind of uh, just a temporary thing but um maybe down the road i can kind of transition to be doing some oh, i'm going to work with clients at the studio and then working on mixing and mastering at home but that's that's down the road um potentially but uh yeah i i love it it's you know it's it's the cliche it's the do what you love. You never work a day in your life. And that's, that's my story for, and it has been forever. So I haven't had a, a boss since Jordan Cooper in 1997, I believe. And I, I would have a hard time going back to a life different than this, which uh, I'm very thankful for. Well, as a corporate restaurateur who still works in a name tag, I think I'd like to hit you with a brick. Um, <laughs> hey, I, I was just, I was trying to, to, uh, Say that I'm thankful for what I have, I'm not trying to cast aspersions <laughs> on 
on it's, anyone that uh, is, is not as lucky as I. Sir, I was just going for a cheap laugh. Well, I want to tell you, Paul, I kind of wondered how this conversation would go. I, I, I feared maybe it would be a little bit dry and technical and just me filling in blind spots. But uh, I actually found it really interesting. And I can't thank you enough for doing it. You're most welcome. If you want, I can still talk about sample rates and compression ratios and attack and release times. And stuff. No, I think we dodged a bullet there, sir. You know. <laughs> All right, everybody, this is episode 46 of Dano Says So. The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. Cleveland is, is a rock and roll city for sure. I do like The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles, The Wrath of the Buzzard, P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts.